Hello, everybody. This is Shane Douglas Keene, and I am here with my partners in crime, Laurel Hightower, Rich Duncan, and our frequent repeat guest host, Tracy Robinson. Um, Tracy, thank you for being here with us again. Um, no problem. Are, I'm happy to be here. We are talking to um, Tiffany McDaniel today, uh, author of Betty. Um, and what's your other book? Tiffany, that's out? Uh, the Summer That Melted Everything. Thank you. Thank you. I knew I was going to get that wrong, and I would have. Um, and so, yeah, let's just dive right in, Tiffany, and thank you for being here with us. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say that there's a bunch of simpering fans sitting here on the other end of the line from you. Uh, <laughs> but... but uh, can you go ahead and tell us something about yourself? Tell us about your background and your writing and all those other books you're going to write for us. And... Well, first off, thanks so much um, for having me. And uh, so a little bit about me. Um, I'm an Ohio native, born and raised here. Um, my books primarily take place in southern Ohio. So I grew up in both southern and south central Ohio. So um, I kind of have more of an accent of the south central, but it was really... Uh, the Southern Ohio landscape that inspired me the most. And um, it was also where my mother came of age. And so when I, Betty is uh, my second book published, but it's actually the first book I wrote. So when I wrote Betty, I had uh, created the setting of Breathed, Ohio, which uh, is a fictional town name, but it's inspired by the Southern Ohio town. And, um, you know, it's become a sort of setting for um, across the, the range of my books. I have uh, close to 20 written now and so breathed is in uh the majority of them there's a few that that don't take place uh in southern ohio but um like i said it's really been sort of uh a driving force within my writing and sort of a driving force within my life and um the summer that melted everything ended up being my first published novel but it was actually my fifth or sixth novel written and so uh, you know, sometimes the book you write, it, it's not necessarily published in that order. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that that's sort of um, that's sort of me in a nutshell. There's not really there's not really yeah. a ton of interesting things besides uh, the book. Oh, I I was uh, after reading you know reading the book and then trolling your website. Um, there's quite a bit interesting about you. You're a fascinating person, I think. Um, and we had a Josh Mailerman has been on a few times um, and he has a similar similar experience. He's got like I think he's got 33 novels out that he's written now, but five or six that he's published. Um, and he said the same exact thing you said. The book you've written isn't necessarily the one you're going to publish first and doesn't mean they're not publishable. But um, or, that leads me to is. Are you an extremely prolific producer? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm writing um, pretty constantly and all the time. It's something that, um, you know, I started doing early on when I was a kid. You know, I I, um, I started making handmade books, uh, you know, when I was younger, uh, using cardboard boxes as sort of the, the book covers and then uh, binding it with my mother's crochet yarn. And so, I, you know, from an early age, I was writing. And then uh, when I was... I would have been 17 when I learned the family secret that really started the seed for Betty. And then from that point on, I was 
uh, started into the novel writing aspect. And prior to that, you know, I had done short stories and poetry. Um, but Betty was really the book that sort of kicked off the novels. And uh, from then on, I've just uh, been writing consistently. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's helpful, too, that um, I have notebooks around the house. I'm, I'm one of those authors who I write with pen and paper first, and then I'll transfer into the computer uh, much later. And so, you know, whenever something comes to me, if I, I'll just grab a notebook from somewhere that I have it stashed around the house, write it down and, and sort of, uh, I think that helps the process. It helps sort of to keep uh, all of that going with the creative juices. And it, it shows, you said you were a poet and that was something I, I told uh, Rich and Laurel earlier is that without even looking it up, guaranteed this writer is a poet. I recognize, oh. I recognize a poet when I read their prose. <laughs> and, and you, I would guess, are a damn good poet based on your prose. Well, I hope so, but I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I'll see. <laughs> Reader's opinion. <laughs> um, if it's any consolation, I am kind of an amateur poet myself, so I have a, I have a little bit of knowledge in that area. <laughs> but, I don't think you could call yourself an amateur anymore. Oh, I certainly though. can call myself anything I want to. Well, that's true, but I mean, based, based on your accomplishments. Um, sorry, I just totally distracted myself. I picked up my phone to look at a note and forgot what I was looking for. So somebody saved me, and I'll yeah. figure out what I'm talking about. I would just say I, I don't have a lot of uh, poetry experiences, but one of the things that I really liked Thank about you, that Betty. Was... Yeah, do you want to do you want to take no no or... no I'm okay. good go ahead. Um yeah I just like the way I don't have a lot of poetry experience, but the way that you like your prose in this novel is just it's so captivating and the way that you kind of set the scene of you know yeah. breathed and everything it's so vivid like one of the one of the important things, you know, at least for me, is like being able to be transported to a place. And with Betty, that came across really well. Like, I felt like I've been there. And, you know, I know it's kind of a, a fictional town based off of kind of, you know, where you had spent time in Ohio and stuff. But it felt very real to me and like I had been there. So I think that definitely comes through. And when we were all reading this, that's one of the things that I thought of was, you know, just how beautiful the language was. And it makes sense that, you know, you would have like a poetry background. Oh, gosh. Well, that's a lot of praise. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, talking about the setting and stuff. And I remember, uh, you know, on the, the course um, to getting this book published, I remember one agent said, you know, your book is set in Appalachia. No one wants to read about Appalachia. Uh, they want to read about places they want to live. And so, uh, you know, I, I hope that, uh, you know, by infusing the setting with sort of um, the poetry and my love of it, that it would sort of show a side of Appalachia that uh, people would want to know and sort of see the, the different uh, dimensions of it. I think it's, you know, a region that sometimes um, we have that sort of stereotypical view of it, of, of um, you know, the poverty and, and sort of the the people are kind of um, the feeling or the sentiment that they're forced to live here, you know, they're too poor to move out or, or this or that. And, 
And so, you know, I wanted to sort of infuse the setting with uh, especially the, the poetry of nature and the poetry of wilderness and sort of uh, show that side to Appalachia that I experienced growing up and, and sort of uh, still carry that love for today. I think I think one of the fascinating things is like if you look back at like the history of like regionalist writers, um, like, you go way back and look at like Samuel Clemens or Mark Twain and then um, Willa Cather, who wrote about, you know, the Midwest. And then current day, we have David Joy and Ron Rash. Um, yeah. I think I think your books are I mean, even though you do have it set in Ohio, which I absolutely love um, <laughs> and and Appalachia. Um, I think it really comes across as almost universal too. So you still are keeping the hints and the and the tone and the feel of that area, but I think um, like a lot of other people can relate to that as well. Um, do you have? Do you did you come up with a certain way to to accomplish that, or is it just something that came naturally? Well, I think um, you know you go back to sort of that universal feeling and it reminds me of sort of, um, you know, the dating of some of the books. So for example, when I was uh, writing the summer that melted everything, it takes place um, in the 1980s. And then uh, the narrators actually aged into the future. And we're talking about, uh, you know, 20 something in the future. And, um, you know, with studying, I like for it to feel as if, um, you know, it is a place that that people from different regions and cultures and backgrounds that they can all connect to. And it's the same thing with the setting where I don't like to uh, cement a story within a certain um, time and place. I want it to feel very fluid as if, you know, it, they were reading the book into the future, that it would feel as if it wasn't a dated story, even though it was taking place. in, for example, the summer that melted everything, 1980 Southern Ohio and in the case of Betty, we're talking about early 1900s to, um, you know, to early 1970s. And so I like for the books to feel as if you read them 30, 50, 100 years into the future, that they would still feel um, relevant and, and sort of still feel current. So that's why I, I sort of... Um, I sort of avoid making any sort of historical traps within the work where they'll feel as if they're sort of uh, stuck in that time and place. I want to feel as if, you know, it can speak throughout the different decades and, and speak throughout the different uh, cultures and, and landscapes. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's definitely an intelligent move. I remember, I think it was The Stand by Stephen King. Didn't he have to, like, update it? I, I, I seem to remember him having to update, like, certain places like he had so many product placements and uh, and things like that, that when they did the revision or the un, the uncut version they updated some of it but i could be wrong do you guys know of that or yeah yeah they did uh, they did update some of the brand names by request and they got paid for it big time so uh, yeah uh, <laughs> stephen king is mentioning your brand name you're gonna pay for it yeah <laughs> So can I, can I, Tiffany, can I, uh, can I read this first paragraph of your book? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Cause this is kind of, I'll forget this if I don't bring it up. Relates back to the poetry, everybody. This is what I mean right here. Um, best opening line ever. And the whole paragraph is just a poem. Um, a girl comes of age against the knife. She must learn to bear its blade to be cut. To bleed, to scar over somehow, be beautiful and with good enough knees to take the sponge to the kitchen floor every Saturday. 
either you're lost or you're found. These truths argue with one another for infinity. And what is infinity but a tangled swear, a cracked circle, a space of fuchsia sky? If we bring it down to earth, infinity is a series of rolling hills, a countryside in Ohio where all the tall grass snakes know how to angels, sorry, lose their wings. Um, that long, that last sentence is hard for my breath. <laughs> but the point being, that's what I mean by poetry. I mean, literally, I could write that out in stanzas and sell it. Just that paragraph. Um, do you intentionally, when you do that, do you focus on trying to get that kind of language out of your writing? Or does it? do you just have a natural voice like that? Um, I well, I think it's it's sort of what I like to do with my writing is that I like for it to naturally evolve. So I don't do any sort of outlining or sort of planning ahead, which I think sort of helps capture that voice and sort of helps uh, capture that poetry. And you know, I, I approach each of the scenes as if I'm sitting down and um, I'm writing sort of the same way I would approach writing a poem. And so I think uh, you know, being a poet and being a novelist, they really work. Uh, hand in hand and you know the things that poetry sort of gives you a strength about is that uh, you know with a poem you're looking at writing something that is impactful in just a few uh, sentences and so you sort of apply that same technique to writing novels and then on the flip side of that when you use sort of uh, the strength of, of being a novelist you approach a poem and, and you look at that beginning, middle, and end, and you think, how can I capture a story within the brevity of lines? And so I think both of both of those sorts of uh, things are, are both handy tools in the toolbox. And, um, you know, I, I think because I've written poetry since I was a child, it's um, it's been something that I think feels natural to me. It feels as if it's, uh, you know, just an approach that, um, that I think you know is best not planned it's best not done in an outline it's best not done in the character sketch it's about sort of you know it's about sort of going out and sort of uh, with a jar capturing the different uh lights in your face and i think that um that's sort of that's sort of the best approach at least for me Um, one yeah, thing. I think that, go ahead. Go ahead, Tracy. Go ahead. But, oh no, I was just gonna say, like, I feel like that the combination of what you just said with how you write, like the the physical medium that you use, like you're writing it on paper with by hand, and it's more of an organic experience. You know, I think that comes through, and we get to we get to when we read it. You know, as readers, we get to feel it too. Um, we're not removed from the situation. And I, you know, maybe I'm getting a little too deep with it here, but I just, you know, I can picture you sitting down with your notebook and um, you've got your pen or your pencil and, you know, it's just, you just let it come, you know, come through naturally. Um, I, I don't know if I'm off the mark there, but I, I feel like that has, like it's all connected somehow. Yeah, I think that that sort of, um, you know, it helps with the flow because, you know, I think sometimes writer can sort of back themselves into a corner when they sit down at the computer and it can be a bit intimidating when you're just staring at this sort of glaring white screen whereas uh, you know when you you take a, a pen to paper it's a very 
physical act. And I think in that physical act, it's also sort of turning this sort of uh, mental inspiration. And at least it does for me. And I think too, you know, my mother, she's always kept notebooks and she's always uh, written poetry in it herself. And um, the poem that actually starts the book out, My Broken Home, was um, a poem that she had written for the publication. And so, you know, I, I learned early on that the importance of sort of uh, just picking up a pen and going through that act, writing it down. And um, it sort of removes that noise and that distraction too, I think, because um, you're just in your own headspace there. You're not, you know, a computer comes with its own distractions. It comes with the internet. It comes with the sort of chance to, for you not to focus on the work at hand. Whereas, you know, if you have a notebook in front of you, that's really all you're looking at. And I think there's also a really uh, wonderful sense of progress, how you get to see those words being written on the page and, and you get to sort of feel uh, the pressure of the pen against the paper. And so for me, it's, it's, it's like this experience. And I think that that's uh, one of the things too, that that feels very organic about it is that it's more than just fingers sort of tapping on the plastic keys. It's, um, it's about making this act and in that act sort of uh, fulfilling the story on the page. I really, I like that. Um, I think you make a lot of good points there, especially with, uh, you know, sitting in front of a computer, it definitely comes with its own distractions um, and and being able to kind of work in the environment that you want to. And uh, this is possibly a pedantic question, but do you have a favorite pen? I'm, I'm kind of opinionated about pens. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm a visual artist, too. So uh, my pens actually when I write my notebooks, I change it up. So I have this whole pack of purple pens, of blue pens, of red pens, of green pens. So uh, since I since I am such a visual artist, I like to open the notebooks and I see uh, the different sections of the story written in different shades of pen, or I see uh, certain poems written in different shades of pen. And for me, it sort of brings this different uh, feeling and this different emotion and this different weight to each of those lines. So I don't have any sort of um, like a brand name pen. It just has to be pens in different colors that uh, I can sort of see that rainbow of colors when I open when I open the notebook. Definitely. Very satisfying. Cool. I like that. You know, so um, actually, for someone, and I'm not going to dwell on this, but um, I have ADHD, and what you just described sounds like a brilliant technique for someone like me to keep track of what the hell they're doing. So I just interjected just to say thank you for that little tidbit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think it is, it is helpful for sort of uh, concentration. It's helpful to sort of... Um, you know, feel as if you're accomplishing this thing. And um, I was actually, I was talking to a writer earlier today, and he was talking about um, this sort of uh, feeling as if he was let down sitting in front of the the blank uh, screen on the computer. And I think, you know, it is something that, uh, you know, you come face to face with in a rather glaring way, whereas, you know, writing with the pen and the paper, and it, it sort of it uh, trains your concentration and, you know, because writing and and imagination, it's very much a muscle. And so you want to exercise it. You want to flex that muscle. And I think that that's uh, that's one of the great ways to do it is by the physical act of sort of putting that pen to paper. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Um, I actually one of the one of the classes I teach is a comp one writing class. So a very basic level writing class. 
And one of the tips I give them for when they get stuck is if you normally are sitting there with your Chromebook and the cursor blinking at you, switch your medium up, like do uh, text to type or something if they, if they, you know, because they're teenagers and they, maybe they don't want to write with a pen and paper or, you know, grab a pen and paper, do something different because it'll make your brain react in a different way. So I love that. I love hearing that. Yeah, I think um, I think our brains are sort of, um, you know, technology has its benefits, of course, but I think, uh, you know, the application in daily life has sort of uh, weakened our muscles, you know, and I'm not just talking about this one, I'm talking about this sort of mental and the muscle of the imagination. And, you know, because we're working um, with these, uh, you know, these machines that can really uh, bear the brunt of the work. And so we don't have to sort of function at the way we used to do in the past. And so, you know, uh, just having that opportunity to approach something without that interference of technology or without that interference of the machine, it allows us to sort of uh, look at those muscles that maybe we've, we've sort of of um you know turn the off switch on for too long so i think it's a it's a good way to approach it to sort of waken up those senses and um i think it it just leads to a whole different avenue so am i interrupting anybody because i've been talking a lot <laughs> no you're good man you're good <laughs> um, let's let's talk about let's talk about uh betty's um um Particularly what I'm interested in here is how much of that is uh, biographical or autobiographical because I was trolling your website, as I mentioned, and you have that behind the book section there with all those pictures, and uh -huh. they, they really, really add to the book, I have to say, as, do your, as do, does the visual art that you have there to support the book as well. Um, but... That is what led me to think, okay, is is some of this biographical or autobiographical? And obviously, that's a dumb question. <laughs> but. Yeah, so um, to answer that, I, I should kind of go back with the backstory of Betty. So um, nearly 20 years ago, my mother Betty had shared with me a family secret. And uh, I would have been about 17. And, you know, I, I grew up knowing some things about the family as mom is one of three sisters in real life. She had three daughters, so I'm one of three sisters. And, you know, mom raised us in the garden with, uh, you know, telling us her relationship with her father Landon and how important he was and how supportive he was of her and her sisters. And like he does in the book where he tells um, mom and uh, Freya and Flossie that they're the three sisters, which, you know, giving a little bit of a uh, backstory on that for our listeners, the three sisters is a gardening technique that uh, it wasn't exclusive to the Cherokee, but it was adopted by many different Native American tribes. And it was the three crops that grow best together. We're talking about the corn, the beans, and the squash, and they, they grow so well together because they benefit one another. And so, you know, mom was telling us all these things from a very early age. And, and um, you know, so those sorts of things I, I knew about the family, I knew about the Cherokee ancestry. And then at 17, when she had shared this family secret with me, I sort of opened the door on the family I thought I had known. You know, I had grown up by Mama Alka's side, and I knew Lynn and Freya and Flossie, and um, 
you know, having learned these these sort of things uh, behind the lives and what they had experienced, it really opened up a whole different conversation. And after she shared that secret, I um I had started to have conversations with her about it, which eventually turned into Q and A sessions. And um, you know, we dug deeper behind the racism that she experienced, uh, the sexism, uh, her relationship with her father, her bond with her sisters, um, the, you know, the complicated relationship with her mother. And um, this led me to then have Q&A sessions with Mama Alka. And, you know, she was someone who, uh, you know, when I was little, she could be very loving and, and sweet and kind. And then the next moment, she could be very distant and, and, um, even a, a bit cruel in some ways. And so I didn't understand that when I was a child, but then older and I was um, listening to the things that she had experienced. And, 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 you know, and in those sessions, she was uh, talking about the abuse that her mother and her father had put her through. And um, all these things sort of helped me to understand the type of woman she had become and the person she had become. And then, you know, I had more sessions with Freya and Flossie about their experiences. And of course, uh, with Lint too, you know, Lint, um, he was an uncle who I have so many fond memories of, but I knew that he was dealing with mental illness. And so he really filled me in on what it was like to come of age with mental illness. And so, um, you know, without having those family members share their experiences and share their stories, you know, Betty wouldn't be here today. And so um, it comes from those, from those sessions with those family members. That's fascinating to me. I, I just because I have I come from a storytelling fam family, um, but I've never really used any of their stories. But because I just don't feel comfortable with it. But someone who has the ability to do that and to shape it into their own thing and their own creation is just uh, amazing to me. Um, and I think Rich wants to follow up on that last question, so I will shut up and ask this next one later. <laughs> <laughs> no worries um yeah i was just curious because i know you said you kind of have like a you know and it's a little different because you know you did q a with your family members and you kind of knew some of the story already but i was just curious what was the process like for you writing betty because i know you said your process is kind of like almost like turning on the faucet i think you said in a couple interviews and you don't really like plan or outline was it different like tr doing different q a sessions for um this one and also you know what was your experience like kind of i know certain aspects of the book like the actual town or fictional but what was it like is this the first book you've written where it's got like kind of non-fictional elements and i also apologize for mashing like three questions into one <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I may need you to remind me on the questions as we go along. But the, the first um, question, which was, what was the first question again? <laughs> uh, the first question was just kind of um, how you, des you describe your process as kind of being like free flowing and stuff. Was it any different, you know, like doing the Q&A things? Because I feel like that would lend like kind of a structure to it in a way. Would. So, yeah, after I did the sessions, because I had uh, written them down as I was doing the sessions, and so it provided me with these notes that I could uh, go back to. And, you know, after I had um, certain sessions, too, that were kind of, um, that were difficult, and we're talking about sort of the, the sessions in which, you know, Mamal talked about the abuse, and, and Freya 
and flossy, um, those sorts of things that, uh, you know, I'd make additional sort of passages or notes after I had those sessions, sort of capturing the emotion and sort of um, kind of writing the feeling that I was getting from that as well. And so that gave me those notes. And then after I had those, I sat down to write at uh, the beginning. And with me, I don't like to jump around from different chapter, maybe go back, write this one, maybe go forward. I like to uh, start at the very beginning, write the complete beginning, head into the middle, write that before going to the end. And uh, only after I have the story from beginning to end do I go back and, and begin to edit or kind of fill in pieces or, or fill in holes or things like that. So it was about uh, using those notes and, and sort of, uh, you know, also recalling from those sessions those emotions and, uh, you know, the feelings and, and um, the sort of things that were shared in a way that uh, you really feel. And, and so, you know, I wanted to sort of capture all of those feelings as well as using uh, the notes. So in that way, Betty was different because that, you know, it was providing me this opportunity to go back, uh, flip back through those pages and um, apply from those those different sessions, um, the different things that I, I felt spoke to the particular scenes I was working on. Yeah. And what was your second question? <laughs> the, the second one um, was just kind of like, what was, because I know you have, um, I think you had said you had like like eight, I think, books already written, and this is the second one that was released. So I don't know if there's other ones that are like this, but it feels like that this is a really personal one. And it almost, I don't know if you would, I don't know how you would personally classify it. Would you classify it as fiction? Because to me, it seems kind of like creative nonfiction, because it seems like you're you took a lot of, you know, actual things that happened with your, you know, within your family. And I was also just wondering, you know, how is that experience different from you doing something that was, you know, personal and, you know, was true versus writing something that is complete fiction? Yeah, I think because um, I wrote Betty first, it really gave me the opportunity to carry that family story forward and different books that I was writing. For example, uh, you know, it was um, with uh, Betty that, you know, over the course of the years, agents would say, this is too female, this is, you know, too this, change Betty to a male narrator. And I was about um, eight years in or so when I, I began to write these other books and the summer that melted everything, I was working on that one. And, uh, you know, Sal is a black boy who is coming to a predominantly white community. And so, uh, for example, with his character, I was infusing him with uh, some of those sessions I had with mom and mama Alka, where they uh, spoke in detail about uh, Papa Landon's experiences. You know, um, I am fair skinned, so I haven't experienced the racism that you know, mom and papa experienced. And, uh, you know, from those sessions, I remembered uh, mom and Alka talking about how Landon would be beaten up by groups of white men in these communities that he was uh, going in to get jobs in or, or going in to live in. And, you know, listening to uh, when he was growing up, when he was uh, when he was a little boy, there were some in the 
community who didn't even address him by name. And even as an adult, you know, they continue to call him boy this or boy that. And so, you know, I listened to that and I listened to the racial slurs that they were called. And it really um, it really began to sort of feed into the character of Sal. And we see with Betty, she's a girl coming of age and experiencing racism from that perspective. And then Sal was experiencing it from the male perspective. And so in many ways, I infused his character with Papa Landon's experiences. And, and then I think about another book that I have, which uh, is on the savage side, and it's one of the unpublished ones. And it's uh, inspired by um, the true crime case out of Chillicothe, Ohio, about the uh, the Chillicothe Six, oh, yeah. which is, a, yeah, it's an unsolved uh, murder case. and. Um, so I, there's still some infusion of reality into these books. And, and for that book also, you know, there's two um, ants in that book and they're dealing with addiction. And after Landon had died, uh, Freya and Flossie, they actually uh, turn to their addictions and they, they live the remaining lives, uh, remaining decades of their lives um, addicted to drugs. And so when I was writing these uh, ants uh, characters in On the Savage Side, I was infusing them. Uh, with some of those things that I had uh, been around growing up around Frey and Flossie. So in many ways, Betty is a story that um, I have carried with me even writing these other books. Mm. I can't remember your third question. <laughs> no, I, th I think that pretty much, uh, I think that pretty much summed it up because uh, I think the third one was kind of just tied in with the, you know, aspect of the nonfiction and how it was different. But um yeah, I think you nailed all of them. And, you know, that all sounds really exciting. Um, like, because as soon as you said the uh, about on the Savage side, um, like, I'm pretty familiar with that one, because I remember when they were doing like the mini series about it. And I think there was like a magazine series about it. And, um, you know, I also think it's interesting that um, I think you have said this is the first book that you wrote that you were kind of able to take experiences like that you learned from, you know, interviewing your family members and just being around them and kind of how it has seemed to, you know, kind of just spread out through the rest of your books and kind of influence those. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it's also with the Savage Side, you mentioned the miniseries. And um, as Faye would have it, I had gone to a school with one of the women who had gone missing up in Columbus and whose case was a suspected link to um, to the Chillicothe case. And so I do look for those those threads in reality because I think, uh, you know, you can take those and you can sort of tuck them into the page and it can uh, become some, you know, it can become something that you're using uh, fiction as the vehicle in which to deliver that to the page. But it's uh, it's still coming from a kernel of truth. Yeah. I think I think stuff like that, you know, it just kind of seeps into our lives. Um, you know, I live in central Ohio and have family in southern Ohio and the Chillicothe stories, plus the, the woman who was from Columbus, like that's all very, very fresh. And it was it was, you know, even though I'm, you know, a few hours away from there, um, I can see how something like that would just, you know, as an artist, those things seep in. Um I hope we get to read that book at some point because <laughs> I'm already like, ooh, I need that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's up to the publishers, so hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Silence. 
<laughs> so how um, has it been um, getting um, the word out about Betty and how have your live to your um, online tours, if you've been doing those, how have those been going? They've been going uh, pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the Zoom, I think the publisher and, and some people are kind of concerned, how will this go? How will this sort of uh, create those sales that are different from a physical um, in-person tour? And um, I think they've actually found that uh, there's more people attending the uh, the virtual tour than there were uh, in person, I think, just because people can, you know, watch it at any time of day and kind of at their leisure. And, uh, you know, I think even after the pandemic, you're you're going to see a hybrid of a virtual and physical tours. So, so far, it's, it's been um, going good. And, uh, you know, one of the things I miss from the in-person is, being able to actually interact with readers and, and, you know, being able to actually sign their copies in person and uh, missing those, those conversations and, and um, you know, that encounter that you just can't get virtually. So, you know, it has its, its uh, ups and downs, but um, so far it's good. And mom is, you know, she's, she's really thrilled with it. It's really um, exciting for her to sort of uh, get this, see this book on the shelf, you know, because, um, for her, you know, she'd also been waiting two decades for it to, to get to the shelf. And so um, for her, too, it's it's a really it's a really great moment. I mean, it's bittersweet in many ways because, uh, you know, we lost some of the family members along the way. And so, you know, she sort of celebrates it with their spirit here. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy that uh, she's here and I'm happy that she she gets to be part of this and see it. That's really excellent. And I, I really like. I think you're right. I think that we are going to be looking at more of a hybrid of the um, virtual stuff along with the physical. Um, I do. I, I miss the physical stuff, too. But but I'm glad to hear that there's been a lot of, of attendance to the virtual things. And I mean, you know, you've got tons and tons of reviews and a whole lot of attention on it, which is excellent because it's it's very well deserved. So I'm glad that this isn't, you know, getting buried by everything going on here. Um and I, I kind of wanted to talk to you some about um, about process and in, in kind of some of what I saw about you talking about your writing. So you you don't outline at all, right? No. Uh-uh. Um, so how do you how do you tend to kind of get started with them? How do you did you say you had a, how many did you say that you had written at this point? Was it did you say 20? Yeah, I have close to 20 now. Last time I wow. off, I was um, I was at 12, and then I've written a few since then. So I have to do a new count, but um, I would estimate that we're closing in on 20 now. Yeah, that's excellent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, with my process, I I always um I always have to start with the title and the first line. Um, I I don't like to start getting to the story after I have those two things because uh, for me. I always want a title and I want a first line that if the rest of the book was, uh, you know, torn away and all we had was that first line, I want something that sort of feels as if it speaks to the story as a whole. So, you know, it's sort of a first line that can summarize the entire book that you're about to read. And, you know, with the summer that melted everything, it was um, the devil comes to town and he comes with the heat. And, and with Betty, it's a girl comes of age against the knife. And so 
uh, those two things I always have to have when I start a new work. And then uh, from there, it's, it's just about, uh, you know, having those notebooks and, and scribbling in them here and there. And uh, I don't keep any sort of um, schedule with my writing. I know some authors can be really uh, sort of intense with they write a certain amount of words a day or they write a certain amount of pages a day or they have to write at a certain time of day or you know, they have to have sort of um, music or, or candles or something like that. So I'm pretty just, um, I, I just scribble it down when it comes to me. And uh, I don't really, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm someone who lives in chaos anyways. And so um, it, it's not sort of something that I stick to a schedule about or, or kind of uh, set about to have to do it at a certain time of day. I, you know, if I get up in the middle of the night and something's there, I write it down. Um, if I if I think of something um, in the early morning or the afternoon, I write it down. And so I'm less scheduled. And I think that, uh, you know, just working with that chaos has um, helped me. So here's something interesting. Um, sorry, I'm just making sure nobody else was going to talk. Um, <laughs> to me, anyway, interesting to me, um, you mentioned in the book that, uh, in Betty, that um, Cherokee society was a matriarchal society. Um, and I never, I never knew that. I'd never heard that before, you know pasty white dude doesn't pay attention i guess but um i find that fascinating because it's i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was something uh you know papa Landon, he had died over a decade before i was born and so i really shaped his history out of those sessions and especially with Manuel alka you know uh she filled me in on on landon's history and he had grown up in a household with several generations of his family and the elders they only spoke Cherokee and he was of a generation where he had English on the doorstep so he had to speak uh, both Cherokee and both learning English and you know he was raised in particular by his grandmother and his mother who were really strong women and they really instilled in him um, the historical framework of the Cherokee society which was that it was matriarchal and matrilineal so they really leaned on women as leaders and thinkers and, you know, once I was learning these things from Mamma, you know, I, I began the, the research process and um, trying to figure out how that historical framework was dismantled. And, uh, you know, learning it was the um, intrusion of Christianity that really removed women from um, their place of power within that society because you know, once Christianity moved in, it really positioned men on the top of the pole. And it took um, the Cherokee men who were formerly hunters and, and gatherers, it took them from the woods to the fields, which had previously been owned and worked by the women. And by doing so, it then moved the women off their land and it moved them into the house and, and, and into the kitchen where they were told they were belonged. And so their, uh, you know, their culture had was being defined and sort of shaped by this uh, Christianity that was coming into their lives. And, you know, I really wanted to um, represent the, the matriarchal aspect of the Cherokee culture because it was something that Landon had really uh, instilled in my mother and her sisters. You know, he made sure to tell them about the three sisters and, and he made sure to, you know, tell them that their voices mattered and that their thoughts were important, especially in a time, you know, we were talking about uh, the 1950s to the 
1970s and Betty's case and Alka's case uh, from the 1900s and, and so on. We're talking about stereotypes that were even more intense for women to face even more than we have today. And so Landon in that time was really an ally for um, his daughters and, and he was telling them, you know, you're important, you matter. And I think, you know, that's what made Papa such a great man was that he had taken those teachings of his mother and his grandmother, and he didn't abandon them as he became a man. He really embraced them, and he used that in a way to um, shelter and inspire and support his daughters. Mm. Sorry, that's fascinating yeah. to me, um, especially yeah. that, he, um, that he was that type of a guy, because I grew up with women, and I mean all women the male role models i had were all uh things i won't say uh, even on the podcast um and i'll say anything on the podcast but uh so i i grew up with women and it seems to me it makes perfect sense to me that a society would be matriarchal you know because i mean it's like the dudes are really good about going out in the woods and drinking and hunting for fucking deer and shit but when it comes to actually making a plan, nah, you know, <laughs> Cherokee had it right. <laughs> right, they were. They were really. Um, they were really. It's, it's such a, a culture to look back on and, and really be in awe of because it's sort of so different than you know the society we live in even today. And you know, we're talking about a framework that uh, the women own the home and uh, they own the land and uh, you know the men actually had to have permission to come into the house and if there was a separation or you know what by our modern vocabulary we would call divorce you know everything was left to the women and and uh, your clan was determined uh, by that uh, matrilineal line. And so um, it said that you couldn't be Cherokee unless your mother was Cherokee. You could, uh, you know, even if your father was Cherokee and he had, you know, partnered with uh, a white woman, it wouldn't have made you Cherokee because his blood and, and his sort of uh, power wasn't enough for you to uh, to be considered Cherokee. And so they really did hold um, their women in high regard. And um, it was something that uh, that Landon really embraced. And, um, you know, I think without that support, and especially for the things that, you know, Freya was going through and philosophy and mom, I think without that support and um, them having someone and an ally at home, especially telling them that they were important, um, I think that they would have uh, survived uh, uh, far less than they did. Yeah. And the the thing with uh, Landon, like you said, um, specifically like his relationship with Betty, because I feel like that one, like he has a relationship with all his kids in the story, but I feel like that that one has a kind of special focus almost, um, you know, reading this book and kind of seeing like his interactions with Betty and, you know, kind of how he encouraged her and the things that he did, like, that really spoke to me because I have a young daughter and just seeing the relate the kind of close relationship that Landon had with Betty, you know, it just really struck a chord with me because, you know, that's the kind of relationship that, you know, I would want to have with my daughter in terms of, you know, supporting her and being there for her and, you know, making her feel like she can kind of do anything. 
Yeah, yeah. And what I, I remembered um, from, you know, when mom was telling me those sessions and, you know, she said, I didn't even start school when I was supposed to because, um, you know, I said I, I didn't want to leave daddy. And, you know, daddy said, yeah, you don't have to go to school. You can stay home <laughs> with me. And so, you know, there was this bond. And, you know, I wanted to preserve that love from those sessions and, and even um, not just with Betty, but, but with, you know, for example, with Lent, you know, he was talking mm-hmm. about. Uh, growing up with mental illness and um, you know I didn't put it in the book about this sort of doctor visits he had the the medications he was prescribed from very early age I wanted to focus on his relationship with Lance and with his siblings without sort of that intrusion of of the medical field in the way and you know he said uh, when I was coming up nights were really difficult for me and uh, I would get really anxious and and really nervous and uh, he said dad would come into my room and he would uh, pull up a chair by my bed and he would uh, he would give up his sleep uh, each night and he would just sit there in the chair and he would uh, talk and he would laugh and he would tell me stories and you know eventually Landon found that uh, coffee really helps you Lent and so you know, it became nights of conversation and coffee for a father and son. And I thought that that was just such a, a touching moment, you know, where Lent said he, he didn't know what he would have done if it wasn't uh, for his dad. And so Landon really was that anchor in so many of their lives. And, you know, they spoke about his death like, you know, there are people who have lost their compass in the world. And it was after his death that, you know, Frey and Flossie, they fell into their addictions and eventually died of overdoses. And uh, Lent, too, would eventually die of an overdose. And so once they lost him, they really uh, lost that that supportive figure in their lives. And um, I wanted to preserve that love and, and that bond of father and child from those sessions. Yeah, and I, I feel like that definitely came across really well. And again kind of like with the setting like and i don't know if maybe it's because this story is so personal to you is that like you know you feel like you get to know these characters really really well and like they all have and kind of how you were able to handle all of their relationships both as like a complete family unit and as you know like the individual relationships you know like landon and betty landon and lint like you said i thought that was really cool Gosh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of praise. But uh, yeah, I, I really wanted to, um, you know, represent their their individuality um, best I could, you know, because I had grown up with them. And so I had that exposure from an early age. And so I, I would look at sort of, um, you know, the, the different things that they would uh, do and kind of how to find them. And, you know, I was looking at someone like Lynn, who, who was dealing with his mental illness. But, you know, I always remembered him as the uncle who always had butterscotch candies for me and then Alka you know she was someone who um, in the book we see that that relationship to storms and you know I would look at her and and she would be like I said one moment uh, really loving and the next moment really distant and and sort of looking out the sky and talking about the weather and so that really became her relationship to the storm in the book and um, you know she she stood out for that because you know for looking at the things that she survived and and it very much felt like storms for her this sort of thunder and lightning and, and gray clouds and um but you know with a storm eventually those clouds clear and so with her we saw the surviving those experiences and you know with looking at someone like Frey, i really wanted to um represent who she was as a person and and you know she said in um 
those sessions and her words have always haunted me. She said uh, of her abuser, he ruined my life. And, um, you know, as I was writing her character, those words never left me. And it, I really sort of infused um, her individual presence with those same sort of haunting words and uh, hoping also to preserve her love for singing and um, and songwriting. And, you know, with Flossie, too, you know, I, I grew up with her and she was always the aunt who was dancing in the background, putting on music and, and talking about how she was supposed to have been more famous than Elizabeth Taylor. And so, you know, it was about taking those memories and those moments that I had with them and sort of using that as the building blocks to create their individual person within the family. So Sorry. do you think, no, it's, no, go ahead. Think, <laughs> we're going to try it again. Do you yes. think that because you're, you're, because all of this is so personal and all, all of the books that you've written um, and, you know, from, from what I've read, your, your voice and your stories are so unique. Um, do you have uh, any like uh, authors or books that maybe have influenced you as a writer or what you chose to write about or, or, or anything like that? I would say from, um, you know, from the time we were in the crib, mom was reading to us. So she has always, valued books and readings and our, our house was full of books and I remember bedtime you know instead of our closets being full of toys or clothes it was full of crates and crates of books that you know made ladders from the floor to the ceiling and, and she would say go get your books and, and we would run in there and, and get whole armloads of books that she would read us um, for that night and so books have always um, surrounded me and you know what mom did when I was growing up I was really sort of uh, in love with those those myths and legends and she, she would get me uh, books on on Greek myths on Egyptian myths on uh, indigenous myths and those sorts of stories and and the folklore and the legends those sorts of things I've always gravitated to so um, those have big you know remain my favorite uh, stories to approach and, and read but I still really love nonfiction too. You know, I love the sciences and I love history, especially, you know, the archaeological sciences. And so reading um, anything to do with nonfiction on those topics and, and true crime too, you know, I think it's a great way to get into the psychology of characters to understand the motives of why people uh, commit the crimes they do. And so I have a pretty broad taste in what I read. Um, but yeah, the, those sorts of uh, things are what I initially gravitate to. Everybody's all silent waiting for somebody else to talk about something. We have several of these awkward silences per episode because people expect it of us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that what it really is is we're all too damn polite, so we're all waiting to see if anybody else wants to say something first. <laughs> um, and I talked myself right into a corner where I don't remember what I was going to approach with you. So let's talk about dolls. You knitted. Well, you tell. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so Kanaf had um, the publisher. They posted a picture on their social media of uh, 
some knitted dolls and then a afghan that was crocheted and they incorrectly <laughs> attributed that to me i am a i do crochet and i do knit but uh all the credit for the the dolls goes to my sister jennifer who knitted those and then the credit for the afghan which um was made out of the cover colors was uh, crocheted by my mother betty and so uh, i can't take credit for those incredible and those incredible um uh projects but yeah <laughs> they're, they're pretty nice Okay, I thought for some reason I got it in my head that you had done it, but I don't pay a lot of attention. But um, they are really awesome. I saw those, and it's like, oh my god, that is so awesome! Especially as the writer, to sit there and to have dolls of your characters, it's like action figures, only cooler. Yeah, it was. It was something <laughs> uh, you know they had started with the summer that melted everything. They had made. Uh, Mom had crocheted an old fielding doll, and uh, she made the even the little tennis shoes. And the little tennis shoes had the, I don't know if you remember in that book, but the tennis shoes in the summer that melted everything had this eye that was stitched into the leather in the back, and, and she had uh, threaded a eye on the back of his little uh, crochet shoes and so they had sort of done that uh, from the beginning with um, the summer that melted everything and and for that book I had uh, I had crocheted an afghan that uh, looked like melted puddles so I yeah I like those um, those projects and it's sort of something that um, I'll always treasure especially knowing how much time they put into those so it's really special it is and I think it's just it's such a it's kind of a cool collection of of media around the projects because I, you know, I noticed also you're, you're a visual artist, of course, and you have several paintings that you did that were inspired by um, the writing. So I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that some. Yeah. So ever since, um, you know, I was little, I was always sort of pairing my stories with a visual component and, you know, uh, starting out, of course, is crayons, is pencils, is markers. And then you sort of graduate to uh, charcoal and, and watercolor and acrylic and, um, yeah, I've always loved, uh, especially making the characters from the different stories, and it gives me that chance to, um, you know, have the characters right in front of my eyes and, and give me the chance to sort of stare into their face and, and sort of feel their presence. And so for me, that visual component really adds that uh, extra layer to it. And in the case of Betty, you know, making uh, paintings of the Cherokee ancestors or making paintings of uh, Landon or Lint or Betty, it was, um, it was even more of a, a special moment because I was capturing people that I, I knew and in the case of the ancestors people that um, I felt I knew but didn't necessarily meet but the paintings gave me the chance to meet them and so uh, for me the, the visual component just adds that extra layer to the story. Did you have oh, oh sorry go ahead Tracy no go ahead no I was just going to ask if if you had some input on your covers because the the hardcover um, both UK and US for the summer that melted everything. And then, and now the cover for Betty have very strong color schemes, you know, with like, it looks like melted crayons on the summer that melted everything. And then the waves on Betty, did you get, did you get some say in what the covers looked like? I uh, know. So, um, you know, according to my, my contract, I don't have cover approval. So, um, you know, the first time around with the summer that melted everything, um, I'll be honest, I really didn't like the hardcover cover. They chose it. The font was sort of, um, 
very YA. I felt like it, it uh, they were trying to tap into the YA market, which of course is a very lucrative market, but I think that um, it, it misdirected some people. I think that they had picked up the book uh, thinking it was young adult, and then it had those, those darker themes and sort of that violence within the story. And I, I didn't feel like that cover really represented the story. I liked the UK cover much better with the flames. Um, and in the case of Betty, when it came time to do the cover for this one, um, because it is such a, a female-oriented story, you know, I. I spoke to my editor beforehand, I said, you know, I don't want any cover that sort of has been um, historically used on on female fiction. And we're talking about, you know, bouquets of flowers or black and white photos of, of girls with their hair blowing in the wind. That's sort of very stereotypical uh, cover that most female authors get stuck with. And I said, you know, I want it very classic. And um, I gave him a list of, of colors that I felt represented the book. And it was that sort of bold Egyptian blue. And, um, you know, they came back with uh, this cover that I felt really captured the atmosphere and, and the feeling of the book. And I, I loved how um, those sections of color really sort of uh, overlapped one another and became waves. And so, um, or represented really the hills, actually. And so it was a cover that I was really happy with from the beginning. But yeah, I don't have cover approval, but uh, this time around, I got the opportunity to at least speak up and sort of uh, have some feedback. And the result is fantastic. Um, I agree, though. The cover does present the book, whether people say don't judge a book by its cover or not, because um, I have not read your first book first published book um for the very reason that you mentioned i was previously not a big fan of ya and saw that book and that's what i thought just from looking at the cover right yeah it was very i told them when i when i first saw it you know i'm like it it, you know it looks like a, a poster that would be hanging on a locker in a high school and they're like no no it's great and I'm like no it's <laughs> not and, you know, and I was like, it's, it's not going to get us um, the review placement in the right places and we ended up getting our review with um, one of the mainstream uh, reviews and it was uh, reviewed by a guy who only reviewed children's picture books and then another reviewer <laughs> was just teen fiction and so it really it really set up that book in a path where it wasn't, um, it just wasn't taken as seriously within the adult market. And, uh, you know, people would kind of look at that book and think it must be kind of fluffy or it must be a sort of summer teen romance. And, um, you know, St. Martin's, they they sort of, um, they publish more along lines of that fiction, you know, Knopf, they publish more literary fiction. And so I think that their covers really uh, lean into that genre. Whereas St. Martin's is sort of leaning into um, that YA market, which, uh, you know, is lucrative. They were trying to sort of get more sales out of that. But um, it just it didn't represent the story for me. No, and that's that's like you said, it, it it's just in a way kind of you won't say this, but I will bad marketing. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, yeah, they're they're selling a book for something even if they're not saying that's what they're selling it as the visual says they're selling it that way. And, and it's hard to get around that people look at the cover and just walk on by a lot of the time without even reading what it's about. Have you been surprised by like um, how many, how much this is being loved by those of us who read in the horror genre? Is that, did you have any like 
idea of what what kind of people would pick this up um like are you surprised by who's really enjoying it and and stuff like that well i grew up on um horror you know i was a kid of the 90s so i was a fear streak goosebumps uh fanatic and uh you know, I grew up on horror movies. I was always, I was always a kid that went to the horror section, and uh, mom would look at the cover and she'd say, "No, you're you're too young for that." And so, I, you know, I didn't put those pieces together when I was writing um, the summer that melted everything in terms that that would be an audience that would be uh, really into the story. And um, you know, I, I found as it was uh, being put out there, and, and people were reading it, and you know, they said, man, this is a lot of violence or man, this is really dark. And um, then when Betty came out and uh, I was doing a lot of sort of outreach to bloggers and um, I had uh, probably three or four start emailing me and saying, you know, the writing is great, but um, this book is too disturbing for me. I just can't read it. And and um, the abuse is just kind of uh, something I'm not comfortable with and, and sort of um, all these sorts of things and, and they were literary fiction bloggers and then I had um, some horror reviewers reaching out to me saying uh, I read your book it's fantastic this is this is horror and um, you know it, it sort of I think what horror does so well is it reaches across these different genres and it's it's not necessarily always uh, the ghost on the, the gothic staircase in the crumbling mansion horror sometimes, you know, uh, those domestic relationships or, or those sorts of um, things that we experience within society from racism to sexism to abuse. And so, um, yeah, the reaction from the, the horror community and sort of reviewers, it's, it's been um, a way to show the work um, and I, I think it's it's easier for horror readers to take in these sorts of stories. I think that um, literary fiction readers can can sometimes be a little bit uh, standoffish to these topics. But I found that uh, for readers and reviewers, they have a much higher tolerance level uh, for these sorts of things. And um, yeah, they've been it's it's just been such a welcoming community of readers that sort of latched onto this. And uh, it's something that. Um, I've just been so grateful along the way because, you know, you get those emails from people who say, I can't read this book. It's it's just too disturbing for me. And, you know, you're like, oh, man, this is this is not good. And, um, you know, you think it's sort of going to crash before it takes off. And um, then you have this reaction from uh, the horror uh, community. And it's like, no, we like this book. This is this is great. This is um, what we're interested in. So it's been uh, it's been really the community that has uh, encouraged me the most. Damn it! Sorry, can you hear? Nope. Oh, my mic is on. Yep, we can hear you. Okay. Sorry, I thought somebody else was trying to talk, so I shut up. Um, never mind. <laughs> well i'm 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 actually i'm really glad to hear that that has that's been really our experience i feel like of the horror community too as far as like just you know being kind of open and very um uh welcoming and, and supportive and i think that that's really great that this is something that maybe didn't start out as something that was planned to be marketed towards this group um, but yeah, as you say, I mean, it's there's such a there's such a breadth of of subject matter for horror, and you know that's these are definitely the people that are not going to be put off by kind of the violence of it. So I I think that's really cool. I'm not sure that I've heard of that yet. Uh, you know, somebody kind of crossing over from more of a literary 
over to horror. Um, so that I'm, I'm just really glad that's been your experience. Yeah, it's, it's been great. And it's sort of, like I said, so encouraging because when you get um, those notes of, from people sort of, this is too much or things like that. And um, then you enter this community where it's, it's really a sort of um, fiction, their champion, and it sort of, it keeps you inspired. It keeps you motivated. And, um, you know, it, it's something that, like you said, they have a little bit higher tolerance for some of the subject matter. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's open a door in terms of um, how I'm viewing some of my work. And, you know, I'm writing, uh, I'm writing three books at the moment. One of them happens to be a sort of uh, ghost story in the Civil War uh, year. So, you know, I think I always have that thread of horror within my writing with the summer that melted everything. Of course, it was uh, the devil coming into society. And it was, um, you know, showing the true devil within society. It's not necessarily the one who is called the devil, but it's one who sort of reacts to the presence of an outsider and uh, you know in the case of Betty we see the horror being in um, those relationships and and that sort of uh, generational abuse and the horror of the history of family and uh, you know surviving that and uh, you know for example with On the Savage Side you're looking at sort of the the horror of uh, crime and and sort of uh, the murder and disappearance of women and so Horror is so great because it covers um, a broad range of topics. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes people only look at horror as, uh, you know, a, a sort of uh, chainsaw massacre kind of uh, storyline or plot. But it actually, you know, it's evolved to where it's um, wrapping around much more than just ghosts and goblins. And it's really capturing the, the human monster and not necessarily the one in the mask hiding in the closet. So, sorry, I'm going to spin back a little bit because uh, I will forget this, as we obviously know. Um, don't you fucking dare, Shane. Um, <laughs> when you're talking about, um, lit, uh, you were talking earlier, and I've and it's been mentioned several times here now, um, the terms literary and horror, and. I didn't know in no way, shape or form is your style similar, but I thought of Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian a lot when I was reading while I'm reading this. I haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the whole thing is that it's like, you know, if you ask uh, the purest, it's it's literary fiction, it's hardcore literary fiction. But ask any horror fan who's read it, and it's just brutal in-your-face horror, you know. And that's that was the the association I made. Not that your writing was like his, because it's not. Because I hate his writing, and I love yours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Cormac. <laughs> Cormac's one of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not likely. <laughs> So, well, not um, anymore, anyway. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> he just quit being one. <laughs> um, so, Tiffany, do you have any books, um, like upcoming, like fiction books that you're hoping to read soon? Anything that that we might know, maybe? Oh man, my my reading of Lay has been uh, <laughs> <laughs> because um, I have uh, a neighbor who is heavily spraying pesticides. So <laughs> my oh, reading no. of Lay has been uh, I've been reading about pesticides, its effects on the environment because 
we used to have a really uh, big uh, frog population here, and uh, they've been pretty non-existent this year. So I've been reading about sort of how to build back frog habitats, and my reading has been kind of, <laughs> kind of in that realm of late. Um, but I do have, like I said, the, the book I'm working on that takes place uh, during the 1800s. So I have some uh, history books on that to sort of uh, to sort of shape the setting of that and sort of uh, uh, shape the the culture of the time and um, yeah, I mean, I, I need to have uh, some other uh, fiction books coming up. I have, uh, you know, for October, I like to read um, kind of uh, nonfiction on witchcraft and, and sort of uh, I have this other book I'm working on that uh, is about a witch hunt. And so I want to read up on, on sort of the history of witchcraft, the history of uh, witch hunters and uh, kind of go back to the the standard uh, Salem witch trials to sort of see um, how that was sort of shaping that, that time and place. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have any sort of um, book that comes to mind that, uh, I'll be reading sort of just straight fiction-wise, but uh, yeah, so that's sort of where I'm at now is, is frog, civil war, and pesticides. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. Like, I'm, I'm bouncing back because I, I teach a few different classes, so at any given time, I've got, like, two fiction books and then a writing manual and it just, that's what life is right now. We just kind of have to take what take what we need and do what we can do to keep going, I guess. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, actually, I do. I do. I just ordered. It's not come in yet. But I ordered uh, Clive, uh, Clive's Hellraiser book, which you know I haven't actually read yet. I, I really enjoy his work, and I, you know, I really like the movie. So for October, that will be a fiction book. I actually ordered that a couple days ago, but yeah, anticipating that arrival. <laughs> yeah, you're you're not alone. I haven't hard, read right? it yet either. Yeah. 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 It's a good book. Good book. I'll be interested to see what you think of it. I haven't read it either yet, so right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Shirley Jackson. I mean, I, I'm always sort of um, finding her work here and there. Um, I have a collection of her short stories, and I have a few of those. And, um, you know, Ray Bradbury, he's an author that um, I reread. I'm often, especially his book, Dandelion Wine, I, I've reread that um, continuously since I was uh, a teenager. And um, yeah, so some of those those old favorites like Bradbury and, and Shirley Jackson. And um, yeah, those are always based on the authors that I return to. Yeah, I love that you mentioned Dandelion Wine because I actually, so the summer that I read, the summer that melted everything, I started with Dandelion Wine. And I immediately read The Summer That Melted Everything. And then I read Robert McCammon's Boy's Life. And so I had like this, I don't know, two weeks of nothing but solid emotion um, and coming of age. And it was just like the perfect trilogy of read these books, Dandelion Wine, The Summer That Melted Everything and Boy's Life. It was perfect. <laughs> Right. It's, it's it's one of my favorite. I've always said it's sort of the book that um, I would like to go with me. There's something very uh, bittersweet about uh, his words in, in Dandelion Wine. And, you know, he's, he's often sort of just looked at as someone who writes about, uh, you know, the sort of science fiction stuff. But he has such um, 
such this sort of untrained uh, prose. And, you know, he's often sometimes criticized for being sort of too freewheeling with his prose or kind of, you know, going out of bounds with it. But uh, I, I, that's what I love about it. It was very, you know, he didn't, uh, he wasn't educated in it. He wasn't workshopped in it. And so you really have this writing that feels very free and, and fluid. And um, yeah, Dandelion Wine, it was just such a, a bittersweet uh, quality to that because you have, the older characters in the book who are pining for their youth and you have uh, the young characters who are pining to be of age. And so it's meeting at this intersectional life that um, it's speaking on a, a level that, uh, I don't know, I just always, I just find um, it's, it's kind of melancholy, but it's also sort of satisfying. Okay, sorry. I'm sitting there talking again with a mic muted. Did you want to say something, Rich? Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask um, real quick about, um, excuse me, um, I know that I haven't read your debut book yet. It sounds really interesting. I actually heard about Betty through Tracy, but um, I know that um, I, I'm pretty sure because I had read some other interviews that you have done that I think like without getting into like spoilers about the plot, but I think that there's kind of like a sort of very small connection between the two in terms of being set in the same place and, you know, like a brief character appearance. And I was just curious, using uh, Breathed as a setting, you know, if you had a plan to kind of continue something like that where you kind of weave your novels together or if, you know, they're just kind of like Easter egg things. Yeah, I do. I like um, the idea of sort of building, um, you know, that universe. And uh, yeah, so in Betty and the Summer That Must Everything, they both take place in Breathed. And so uh, Betty takes place earlier than the Summer That Melted Everything. And uh, because of that, I was able to take some of the characters from the Summer That Melted Everything, which we're talking about Fielding, who would have been 13 years old, and Grand, who would have been 18 in that book, and their father, Autopsy. And, you know, at the end of Betty, uh, those are the three who pick her up. And so we have Autopsy as a younger father. We have Fielding as um, a baby and we have Grand as a toddler. And, uh, you know, there's also some overlapping characters from, you know, there's a character in the summer that melted everything named Elohim. And which was uh, a name that was uh, taken for uh, the name for God. And, th and that makes sense in that book when you have uh, a character who is called godly, but he doesn't necessarily act uh, like God. And uh, you have a character in Sal who is called the devil, but he doesn't necessarily act devilish. And so I was able to take Elohim's character and in Betty we see him uh, buying a freezer and uh, climbing inside it and, and talking about all of the things that he will butcher. And, uh, I, you know, I don't want to uh, say too much more on that to give spoilers away, but, you know, you'll see him and Betty buying that freezer. And then when you read The Summer That Melted Everything, you'll sort of uh, know why. And um, we have some other mentions like Aunt Fidelia, and she's, you know, she's talking about uh, the glass. And that makes sense in The Summer That Melted Everything when we see uh, the broken windows. And so I like sort of having those connections, having those threads, seeing the characters cross paths. And even though Betty was inspired by mom's life because it took place in Breathed, I was able to incorporate some of those things from the summer that melted everything. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Very, and I, very cool. Yeah. 
I just want uh, no. I was just gonna say I look forward to going back and reading um, the summer that melted everything. Now, yeah, I do too. I do too. Well, for because okay, uh, Betty, Freya, Flossie, Landon, that crew right there. Those people are amazing. You are a master character developer. Um, and everybody should listen to me when I say that because it's true. You, those characters own me. I'm in love with them. Oh, um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm telling everybody that because I'm going to segue into an ending here because I have to cook for my wife and it's almost eight o'clock. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so do you have uh? Do you have um? Anything else you want to announce or talk about before we uh, cut this off and beg you to come back again someday? <laughs> uh, no, just say that, uh, yeah, I can't wait to actually come back. It was such, it was such a fun talk. It was one of the uh, more enjoyable ones, so <laughs> a lot of fun. Well, thank you. That Thanks. we just Like I said, we just sit and rap. We don't really interview, and it works out well. It does. Yeah, it feels very, uh, very much like just a conversation with friends, which, uh, you know, is, is, uh, you know, nice. And it's different from sort of the, the Q&As and the different interviews. And so it's, it's nice. It sort of just uh, feels like you're gathering in a virtual backyard and just talking about books. So it's really nice. Okay, well, um, go ahead, Rich. No, I was just going to say, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, we appreciate you coming on. I, I absolutely loved uh, reading Betty, and I look forward to reading more of your books and going back and checking out your first one. Oh, gosh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. I was going to say, too, uh, Tracy, because she has been such a, a champion and cheerleader of my work from the summer that melts everything, and so she sort of uh, really, I just want to acknowledge how... how um, how supportive she's been in the work and to see her her face here tonight and to hear her voice is, is just really wonderful so i want to give that shout out thank you <laughs> tracy oh goodness <laughs> yeah she does <laughs> oh my goodness well well like you've been saying well that's a lot of praise <laughs> um yeah i well when i found out that for your last book you had actually been in the town that i live in and like we we existed in the same city for just a little bit, but I had no idea. Um, so I hope that, you know, when all this dies down, that you can make your way back up and um, I'll continue to yell about your books as long as I have the voice and the platform to do so. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe eventually after the pandemic, we'll get to actually cross paths in person. But yeah, it was so, it was so funny to sort of learn. Uh, that you were in Ohio and, and sort of uh, we had sort of crossed paths without even knowing it. So, yeah, it was a really great connection. That is yeah. cool. I, d I didn't know about the connection at all until you started talking about it here on the podcast. But small world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think that about wraps it up. Laurel, did you want to say anything or? No, just, uh, just to echo, thank you so much for coming on. We really, um, I, I really enjoyed getting to talk to you about, you know, process and what you got coming up. And I'm super psyched that there are so many more novels out there that hopefully we'll get to see soon. Yeah, fingers crossed. You'll <laughs> 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 um, hey. be up to pleasure, but yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you so much for being here, Tiffany. Um, I want to say one more thing, totally unrelated to everything we're talking about here, and that is um, RIP to the great Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, who passed away today. Uh, she was an American hero. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, all right. Everybody take care. This has been amazing, Tiffany. Oh, it's been so wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, y'all. Have a wonderful Thank night. You. Yep. You too. Bye bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing? <laughs> <laughs>